Welcome to the Salt Company Cedar Falls podcast. We're a ministry of Candeo Church, and we are glad you're listening. All right, everybody. Hey, welcome to Salt Company. Like we said, go ahead and find your seat. Awesome to be with you all. If we have not met yet, my name is Stephen. I am the Salt Director here, and it's awesome to be with you tonight. So tonight, we are talking through the story of the flood. And so uh, I have three kids. We have a lot of books at our house, and I actually stole my daughter's book. So this is her Noah board book. Noah board book. And I actually, to set up our story, the flood account, I want to read this to you. So I scanned it in today. Let's see the cover for everybody. Oh, okay, that's page one. The cover is Noah board book pink. Lots of beautiful animals, okay? Okay, page one, here we go. God, it rhymes. It rhymes, what a beautiful thing. Okay, here we go. God saw the wickedness across the land and decided upon a mighty plan. He called on Noah, so righteous and good, to build an ark from strong hard wood. God announced that a flood was near and people and animals would disappear. But the Lord told Noah what to do. Bring all the animals two by two. Lions and hippos and cows that go moo. My kids love that part. Like totally always start mooing and everything. Chickens and rhinos and elephants too. The ark will keep you all safe and dry when the flood begins and the water is high. I don't know which of, your, of these animals is your favorite. I personally love the smirking turtles. Just that cute little smile. <laughs> like, look at those guys. Oh, you, okay, so you can only see one. I've, there's two of them, and the other one has an identical smirk, and it's hilarious. Okay, page, whatever it is. It's not numbered. For 40 days, God made it pour. Then suddenly, it rained no more. But the deep, deep water was all around. Noah sent a dove to search for ground. That is my child reading voice. It, like, the more I read kids' books, the more it comes out. The bird returned with the branch of a tree. Land was found. The ark was free. Then God sent a rainbow as a sign, a gift of his love that forever will shine. And there is not Middle Eastern Noah, white American Noah next to two fluffy bunnies. So those are the things I love about this book. Uh, The back is a dove with the shining thing of glory of God. It's what I imagine when I see that, like, glory page. That was page one, just the yellow shining. Okay, why do I read that? Why do I read that? Okay, I think that's a fine book for little kids. Like, I don't know that I want Isla and Jack to be, like, totally exposed to all the realities of the flood narrative right away as two- and three-year-olds. But here's what I think. I think that the vast majority of people I interact with, when they think of the flood or Noah's Ark, that is somewhat the picture that they have in their mind. Kind of this children's book picture of these nice animals, these turtles that are smiling, pink covers, rainbows that are beautiful, white American Noah next to bunnies. That is what I think most of us have in mind. And it really is this desensitized version of the story of the flood. It's this minimizing what actually happened. When we read the flood account in the Bible tonight, what we're going to see is that it is actually one of the most sobering, dark, horrific stories in our entire Bible. 
And so many of us, regardless if we grew up in the church or not, have this desensitized version of the Noah story in our minds, this Noah board book view. And here's what I have come to find. I think that this same Noah board book view of the flood is actually the same Noah board book view that most of us have of our sin that we have a desensitized view of our sin, that we have minimized what it means that we have rejected God and that we actually think of our sin and think of the holiness of God in this Noah board book way. And so what I wanna do tonight is open up Genesis six through nine and see this account of the flood. So like I said, Genesis six through nine in your Bibles is where we're gonna be at. So last week we saw that God is a powerful God who created all the world. He was the loving creator who wants an intimate relationship with his creation. We saw that he gave humanity a design, a way for them to bring glory to him and enjoy him. But that humanity rejected that design. Adam and Eve reached out and took the fruit that they were forbidden to take. As a result, they were cast out from the garden under condemnation. They were guilty and death and brokenness began to corrupt the entire world. And what happens between Genesis 6 or 3 and 6 is just this continuous downward spiral of humanity. It's just greater and greater levels of wickedness are prevailing in this created world. And we get to Genesis 6 and in the flood story, we get one of the most visible portrayals of God's wrath against sin. One of the most tangible expressions of what it means that God will judge sin. And so here's my question for tonight. How have you had a Noah board book view of your sin? How have you had a Noah board book view of God? How have you become desensitized to your rejection of him? In what ways do you think that you have committed Noah board book sins against a Noah board book God? So let's read this story in Genesis 6, the account of the flood, starting in verse 5. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl and the birds of the sky. For I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Okay, so Adam and Eve rejected God. And that rejection was planted deep within the heart of humanity. And God looks down at his created world, at humanity, and here's what he sees. Widespread wickedness. Widespread. He looks down and what he sees is widespread wickedness across the entire created world. And back in Genesis 1, when God creates humanity, he creates them in his image. And what does he do? He blessed them and told them, multiply and fill the earth as my image bearers, as people who will express, be an expression of my glory. But what does humanity fill the earth with instead? With wickedness. The earth isn't filled with God's glory. It is filled with the wickedness of sin. Sin was widespread across the creation. But not only that, it was deep within the human heart. Humans were wicked to their core. 
Look what it said. It said that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. To the core, humanity had become wicked and corrupt. They weren't neutral in making a decision whether or not they were going to follow God or not. No, they were completely corrupted to the core. Every inclination was nothing but evil. God looked at his created world and saw widespread wickedness and evil within the heart of humans. Here's how Paul described humanity after our rejection. Chapter three of Genesis, we often call the fall of humanity. Here's how Paul describes what happened in the hearts of humanity after the fall. 3.10, Romans 3.10. Paul says this, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the state of humanity after our rejection. Ruined and wretched, widespread and deep. God looks down and this is what he observed. He saw tongues that were full of cursing and bitterness. He saw feet that were quick to shed blood. He saw no one who was doing good, no one who was seeking God, no fear of God among humanity. There was just complete and utter rejection of God. Their minds on evil all the time. God had created the world to be an expression of his glory and we rejected that and filled it instead with sin, death, and decay. Wickedness widespread and deep. So God resolves then to judge the world for the rebellion. Verse six of Genesis, uh, verse seven of Genesis six says this. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl and the birds of the sky for I regret that I made them. God, the creator looks at his beautiful creation in ruin and steps in as the judge. The rejection of humanity deserves the just penalty of God's judgment. So God says, I'll wipe mankind off the face of the earth. And in the midst of the vileness and wretchedness of humanity, Noah finds favor with God. So verse eight of chapter six says, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. And Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Noah, in the midst of all this wretchedness and ruin, he finds favor with God. He was a man described by righteousness and blameless, one who walked with God. And God selects this man and his family to restart humanity, to restart this created world. So God gives Noah these instructions. Look down to verse 11. It says this, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was for every creature had corrupted its way on earth. Then God said to Noah, 
I have decided to put an end to every creature for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. God goes on to give Noah specific dimensions that he's to build the ark by. He then tells them that he's going to bring two types of every unclean animal and seven types of every clean animal. He's to get provisions for them while they're on the ark to provide for them. Noah reveals, God reveals this plan to Noah and tells them that I am going to use your family to restart and repopulate the earth. So Noah obeys, he builds this massive ark. He, God brings the animals to Noah. All the provisions are made and then the flood comes. And here is the description of the flood. I'm gonna read chapter 7, 11 through 24. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky were opened and the rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On that same day, Noah, along with his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's wife and his three sons' wives entered the ark with him. They entered it with all the wildlife according to their kinds, all the livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that crawl on the earth according to their kinds, every flying creature, all the birds and every winged creature according to their kinds. Two of every creature that has the breath of life in it came to Noah and entered the ark. Those that entered male and female of every creature entered just as God had commanded him. Then the Lord shut him in. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water surged and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Then the water surged even higher on the earth and all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet. Every creature perished. Those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as all mankind. Everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils. Everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth from mankind to livestock, to creatures that crawl, to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the face of the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. And the water surged on the ark 150 days. Think about this scene for a moment. Like try to visualize it in your mind. Imagine what it would have been like being Noah. You're building this ark, the animals start coming, and imagine that first sound of the bursting watery depths. Like that had to be hit loud. Just And then thunder crashes and lightning cracks. And as the 
watery depths are bursting and crashing. As thunder is going, there's chaos and panic. Imagine your heart racing as you're trying to get into the ark. And rain starts to fall. God shuts you in and there you are in the middle of the ark with your family. What do you think the noises were that they were hearing when they were inside that ark? Like, what do you think they could hear? Could they hear screams? The same mouths that once were full of cursing and bitterness, tongues that had venom underneath their lips are now tongues and mouths that are gasping for air and crying out. Could they hear fists pounding? The same fists that shook at God in defiance and rebellion, the same fists that murdered and striked down are now fists pounding on the sides of the ark. What would it have been like being Noah sitting in there? As you are hearing the noises of God's judgment against sin. As the days go on, you begin to hear less screams, but more distant shouts as people are clinging to mountaintops and roofs. Fists trade for the sound of lifeless bodies and the dull thud when they hit the ark. Eventually the rain stops and then it's just the unsettling silence of a created world completely covered in the watery judgment of God. And you are sitting on this ark for 150 days. This is not a Noah board book. This is sin against a holy God and his judgment against sin. It is a visible portrayal of how severe it is to sin against God. It's a story of judgment, a story of a righteous God and his just punishment of sin. God who gave breath to everything, now taking it back. The writer of Genesis makes no mistake in the way he describes it. It's a totality of judgment. Over and over again, he mentions all, everything. God did not leave any inch of his created world that had been, created, that had been corrupted by man's rejection without judgment. Sin was widespread and deep and God's judgment was total. Every creature perished. Everything with the breath of life. Everything on dry land. He wiped out every living thing. From mankind to livestock to creatures that crawled to birds of the sky, they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah and his family were left. Sin is an offense against a holy God. And we have become so desensitized to it. We've become so unaware of what our sin is before God. And we've become so desensitized to his righteous judgment against sin. We have a Noah board book view 
of something that God took this seriously. God's judgment is carried out and then the waters begin to recede. Eight, chapter eight, verse one says this, God remembered Noah as well as the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. The sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky stopped. They were, the water was steadily receding from the earth and by the end of 150 days, the water had decreased significantly. The ark came to rest in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ariat. So the floodwaters begin to go down. Noah sends out birds to determine when he can go out. Eventually it becomes clear that the land had dried and he can go out. He goes out, he builds this altar and God establishes a covenant with Noah in the world. Now notice as I read this covenant that God makes with Noah in chapter nine, how many things sound like Genesis one and when God created everything. So here's the covenant God makes with Noah after the flood. Chapter nine, verse one. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I give the green plants, I have given you everything. Once again, God blesses them and he gives them the command, multiply, fill the earth, be fruitful. The same way he did with Adam and Eve, God blessed Adam and Eve and told them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God now gives Noah and his family and also in the same way, authority over the created world. You have authority over these animals and creatures that crawl. And what we see is it's as if God was restarting He's starting over a fresh start with his created world. Wickedness filled the world. And now here is this recreation scene of sorts. Then after this, God establishes a covenant. Verse 11, here's what he says. I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never be again a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So God gives Noah and his family this promise. Never again will I flood the earth by water to destroy the whole earth. He establishes this covenant and gives them a memorial sign of a rainbow in the sky. And you just get this scene of kind of them coming off the ark and having this fresh start. They're restarting. Okay, here's the thing about restarts. I want you to think about this. So I drink a lot of coffee. There's varying spectrums that people use to assess whether or not you drink a lot of coffee. I would say the vast majority of people think I drink an above average amount of coffee, but I don't feel bad about it at all. And here is the reason. I started drinking coffee on October 6, 2012 at around 8.30 a.m. at my freshman retreat for Salt Company. And at that freshman retreat, I only put a creamer and a sugar in it. And two, two weeks later, October 19th, my fall retreat freshman year, I wasn't even using cream and sugar. Black coffee only. And here's the thing. I'm convinced that what that camp had must have been Folgers because what hooks you keeps you. 
And I only drink Folgers now. I buy it in bulk. I never want to run out. Thank you so much. Lots of Folgers. So I don't feel bad because black coffee has like six calories in it. So I'm like totally fine. We're great. So a couple years ago, I, again, I don't drink sugary, creamy coffee or anything. So a couple years ago, we have a group of college students over to our house. And of course, we brewed a pot of coffee because it was eight. PM, and that's what you do at 8 p.m. is you drink coffee. So I brew a pot of coffee, and I'm getting mine, pour it, black coffee, and good old boy John Tretton, Johnny, Johnny, Johnny comes in. He goes, can I get a cup of coffee? I'm like, for sure, man. Give him a cup of coffee. He's like, can I get cream or sugar? And I was like, yeah, I don't have any of that. I might have some sugar. So I reach up into our cupboard real fast, grab a bag that looks like sugar, set it down. He pours the sugar in. I go sit down in the living room, and then here comes John Tretton. Now, here's the thing about John Tretton. This is a cool question. Does anybody actually know John Tretton? He's from Linville, Sully. Okay, John Tretton is one of those guys. And you know him, I wish I could describe him better, but it's like, you know the type of guy he is by just his name, John Tretton, okay? You get it. So he comes sitting down, he sits down in the living room with his coffee and something looked totally off about this cup of coffee. On the top of the surface floating there was a huge clump of sugar just not dissolving, sitting on the surface. And John is trying to stir this sugar in. And eventually he gives up because it's still just sitting there and he takes a drink and immediately gags. He's like, Ugh! and he's like, something's wrong with your sugar. And I walk over and look at it. I was like, something is wrong with our sugar. What's up? And I go over, look at the bag and I had totally given him flour. So John Tretton took a huge scoop, maybe multiple scoops of flour and put it in his coffee. I felt so bad that I tried some because I was like, I'm just curious what this tastes like. It does taste horrible. It is absolutely disgusting. And so I'm like, okay, John, come here. The rest of the year, we called him Flower Boy. I actually texted him today calling him Flower Boy again because I told him I was gonna tell this story. So I was like, Flower Boy, come here. Like, let me get your cup of coffee. So I dump it out, pour him a fresh cup of coffee, get him actual sugar. He puts that in, has a great cup of sugar at now probably 8.30 p.m. Now. What do you do when you start over? When I started over with that cup of coffee, what was I trying to do? I was trying to get the flour out, right? When you start over, when you restart, you're trying to get a unwanted substance out. So I was trying to get flour, unwanted substance out. In Genesis nine, we have all of these telltale signs that God is restarting. He's making us think of Genesis one, right? He blessed them commanded them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, gives them authority over the creatures. It sounds like he's restarting. So if he's restarting, what would we expect? We'd expect there's some substance he wants to get out. What would that substance be? Well, the most obvious candidate would be wickedness, sin, evil. Totally makes sense. God in the flood is restarting. He's getting rid of the wicked people and starting over with this family to give them another chance to live according to his design. But there is something so unexpected in chapter eight as Noah is building the altar. Look there, chapter eight, verse 20. Here's what it says. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. 
what's present still? Evil. God says the inclination of every human heart after the flood is still evil. Wait, I thought we were restarting. Wasn't the whole point of the restart to get rid of evil and yet evil is still present. It wasn't just animals that were on the ark. There was a stowaway. Sin was stowed away in the heart of humanity and it made it to the other side of the flood. Evil was still present. So then the next logical question is to ask, what then was the purpose of the flood? I thought it was to get rid of wickedness, but yet wickedness is still here. What then is the purpose of the flood? Well, first, the purpose of the flood was to legitimately judge the sin of these people. They had committed horrible things and God brought a righteous judgment upon them. But second, the purpose of this story is to serve as a warning to us that there is a worse flood coming. Jesus said this to his disciples in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, 37, Jesus said this, as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the son of man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the son of man will be. The flood story is to give us a warning that a worse flood is coming. Jesus is returning. And the story of the flood gives us a tangible picture of what his return will be like for those who are not in Christ. You saw that in Matthew 24, there's these people living unaware, not aware that this coming is happening. They're eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. And the same way in the days of Noah, completely unaware of their sin and the judgment that is coming. And yet Jesus says that in the same way the flood came, his coming will be like that. The story of Noah is to serve as a warning. This is what God's future judgment will be like. God promised to not flood the earth with water again, but however, evil still persists and therefore God's judgment against sin still stands. Here's the description Peter gives of this coming judgment. In 2 Peter 3, 3, he says this, above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days scoffing and following their own evil desires saying, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continued as they have been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There might not be a flood of water that awaits us, 
but the current heavens and earth are being stored up for fire on the day of God's judgment against the ungodly. There is a flood of fire being stored up to bring a righteous judgment upon the wickedness of our world. And so many of us have a Noah board book view of sin. So many of us have a Noah board book view of God's judgment. The flood serves as a visible portrayal of just how serious sin is. Now, there's most likely been a growing tension in your heart. How can God both be the gracious, loving God that we saw in the creation narrative, one that wants intimacy with his created ones, and the God of judgment and wrath in Genesis 6 and 9? How can that be? Well, to resolve that tension, there's typically two denials. One denial is to deny that God's a God of judgment. It's the same denial that the scoffers had in 2 Peter 3. God won't judge. There's no hell. That doesn't exist. God is only a God of love. But here's why that denial is inadequate. And sooner or later, you won't feel comfortable with it. In two days, we're going to remember 9-11. A day marked by horrible atrocities committed by Al-Qaeda. And we're going to hear recordings of, of the thousand voicemails sent to loved ones from people on planes and in the towers. Ones like Cece Lyles. Here's what she sent to her husband and children who missed her voicemail. Hi, baby. I'm baby. You have to listen to me carefully. I'm on a plane that's been hijacked. I'm on the plane. I'm calling from the plane. I want to tell you that I love you. Please tell my children that I love them very much. I'm so sorry, baby. I don't know what to say. There's these guys, they've hijacked the plane. We're turned around and I heard that they're planes that have been flown into the World Trade Center. I hope to see your face again, baby. I love you, bye. 20 years ago, she died and there's been a husband and three kids without their mom because Al-Qaeda coordinated four attacks that killed almost 3,000 people. And if you have a God who is not a God of judgment, then there is no accountability for the atrocities committed by humans. You know what the most loving thing is for a father who is in Sudan, who has experienced the Darfur genocide? A God who will hold accountable the insurgents, who forced that father to watch his wife and children raped before his eyes and then watch them murder one by one everyone in his village. You know what an expression of love is for that father? For God to look at that and bring judgment. It would be the most unloving thing for God to look at the atrocities of the Nazi camps and do nothing. So then that leaves us with another denial. Well, if I can't deny that God is not a God of judgment, well, then I'll deny that I'm among the wicked. That's how 2 Peter 3 ended, that there is fire being stored up for the wicked. Well, maybe I'll just deny that I'm among the wicked. But that also doesn't work because what we've seen is that every inclination of the human heart is for evil. All of us have pursued unrighteousness. All of us have rejected God. 
And the reason why we're blinded to that is because we compare how good am I to other people instead of how good am I compared to a perfect and holy God. But when our reference point switches from how good am I compared to other people to how good am I compared to a holy God, we begin to realize that all of us are, have rejected God and stand in condemnation. So that denial doesn't work either. How then can we resolve this tension? How can we have the God of Genesis 1 and 2 who is this intimate, loving creator and yet a God of righteous judgment? How can those things work together? Well, we begin to see a glimpse of that answer in the way that Noah's story ends. So if you look back at Genesis with me in Genesis 9, So in Genesis 9, we saw it. He blesses them, commands them, be fruitful and multiply. He establishes this covenant. And then the story of Noah does something completely unexpected. In fact, the children's book totally left it out. Noah and his family, they go, they get settled into this new post-flood world. And in in verse 20 of chapter 9, here's what it says Noah did. Noah, as a man of the soil, began by planting a vineyard. He drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, one of his sons, weird name, I know, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers. So then his brothers come in, they cover his nakedness, and Noah wakes up, gets sobered, curses his son Ham. What a weird, unsatisfying end to a story, right? Like, Okay, God is going to condemn and judge the unrighteousness of the world, this wickedness that was widespread and deep. He's going to use this man who found favor before him, righteous and blameless, walked with God. They get to the other side of the flood when everything is wiped out and Noah gets drunk, naked, curses his son, and the story ends. What? Why would it end that way? What a horrible story. Here's what the author of Genesis is doing. He is ending his story in a very bizarre and confusing way to make us go back to the beginning of the story and look in this new, with these new lenses at this person that we thought was the hero, but turns out to not be the hero. Now, here's one of the interesting things. When, God, when Noah finds favor with God in chapter 6, verse 8, It starts with Noah finding favor and then says that he was righteous and blameless. It doesn't say that God looked at all the world and saw a righteous and blameless person and that person he chose. It said that God looked at the widespread wickedness and Noah found favor with God and was righteous and blameless. Now, why does that matter? What, why that matters is Noah, just like the rest of humanity, had the seeds of sin sowed into his heart. And he too needed the mercy of God for his sin. And the end of the story reveals to us that it isn't actually Noah who's the hero of this story. The true hero of the flood is actually another man who would come and who wouldn't ride a boat across the flood waters of God's wrath, but instead on the cross would experience the flood waters of God's wrath a man who came from heaven and drank the cup of God's wrath on the cross. And he cried out, my God, you have abandoned me. And it was his fists that were nailed to a cross. 
The message of the cross is not that you are hopeless, but instead that there is hope in Jesus. The message of the cross is not swim harder to get to the boat. The message of the cross is to believe in Jesus who was the ark that saved us from the wrath of God. Here's an interesting thing about this story of Noah. You'll notice that Noah was the only one of his family that it said he was righteous and blameless before God. The other seven, it's not, that doesn't, it doesn't say they were righteous and blameless. It doesn't say they found favor. And yet those seven got on the boat on the account of the righteousness of one man. In Jesus Christ, you can bring all of your unrighteousness, all of your rejection, all of your brokenness, all of your sin, all of your guilt, and you can get on the boat, not on the account of your personal righteousness, but on the account of the righteousness of one man who became sin so that you could receive the righteousness of Christ, so that you could experience the love of God. The reality is there is not a single sin committed on earth that will not be judged. The question though is who will experience the judgment for that rejection? Will it be you or will it be Jesus on the cross? And the hope of the cross is that the grace is available to every single one of us. Let's pray. God, you are a holy God. And God, so often we have a small view of who you are. We think of our sin the same way we think of going five miles an hour over the speed limit. It's not a big deal. But God's sin is an offense against a holy God. God, we have a sobering portrayal of your judgment against sin. God, I pray that seeing this would serve as a warning for us of the coming judgment when Christ returns. God, I pray that it would put us in a place of repentance, of acknowledging your greatness, of acknowledging our sin before you, but embracing the grace that we can have in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be people who don't have a Noah board book view of our rejection, but instead recognize the depth of it and the width of it. And in so doing, recognize the depth and width of your love for us in Christ Jesus. The one who is righteous on our behalf, the one who we are saved by, not because of the righteousness within us, but because of the righteousness of him. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salt Company Cedar Falls podcast. For more information about Salt Company, you can visit saltcedarfalls.com.